0: Starting at verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 12. Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and I made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed." Whose ox have I stolen, taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day. You have not found anything in my hand. And they said, "'He is witness.'" And Samuel said to the people, "'The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron "'and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. "'Now therefore stand still "'that I may plead with you before the Lord "'concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord "'that he performed for you and for your fathers. "'When Jacob went into Egypt "'and the Egyptians oppressed them, "'then your fathers cried out to the Lord "'and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, "'who brought your fathers out of Egypt.'" and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hands of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We've sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal, and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, And delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And All the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord, your God, that we may not die for we have added to all our sins, this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you, but if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our title this morning is up on the PowerPoint, Kept by Grace and Kept for God. It seems that one of the overarching themes in Samuel, and certainly in the Old Testament and in this passage as well, is the keeping power and the keeping intention of our Lord. Now, Samuel sets up this passage, or this message rather, to the people of Israel immediately after chapter 11. There's no time lapse between the end of 11 and the beginning of 12, as far as we can see at least. Chapter 11 ended having Saul finally risen up to his position as king and leading his people in victory against the Ammonites. Samuel then, in the end of chapter 11, has said, Hey, let's go to the hill of the Lord and renew the kingdom. And there, they say in the end in verse 15 of chapter 11, there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So they go from a moment of rejoicing over God's salvation, rejoicing over their newly anointed and appointed now king over Israel, to a very sobering message from God's prophet Samuel. Now, I, I return us to the end of chapter 11 in order to sort of set up the beginning of our message this morning. There's an outline in the bulletin, if you've grabbed one, that maybe have of help to you. But Samuel has called Israel to draw near to God. And they have drawn near to him in celebration and in acknowledgement of the victory that he's done for them. Saul himself even says, hey, the Lord is the one who has worked this great salvation in Israel. He doesn't take any of the glory for himself. Things are going really well. It is often in some cases that when things are going really well that we need to hear some harsh truths. And it is often when we're hearing harsh truths that some of the most comforting and best truths of God are highlighted all the more. We are called along with Israel to draw near to a God who keeps his people. He is not a God who would set up a relationship with people in full knowledge of their failure and full anticipation of their failure and full acceptance of their failure. Certainly he sets up a relationship with Israel understanding and expecting that they will fail. But he doesn't leave them in their failure. His intention is very certainly to keep his people. And it's important for us too in this to start with the idea of God's keeping power rather than to start with our enduring ability. That is to say, if I am to remain in the Christian faith, what is it that that depends on? Does it depend on me keeping the Sabbath, keeping the commandments, doing all of the Christian things that I need to do that are right and good, And so long as I keep myself in my lane in obedience to God, I have no reason to fear being left behind. That may, in fact, describe the theology of many of us today. It may not describe our theology, but it may describe our practical theology. We may be those who believe that once God saves someone, he keeps them to the end. We may be those who in our mind immediately go to the book of Philippians and say, he who began a good work in you we'll see it through to the end, to the very day of Christ. We may find great comfort in those words. But it may be that practically, we are tempted in a lot of ways, perhaps, to rely on our own enduring ability rather than God's keeping power. So it's important for us to lay that out first at the beginning of our study to this morning um, to see that we are starting with God's keeping power and not our enduring ability. And that seems to be evident in Samuel's recollection of the history of Israel. Because when he goes through Israel's history, what you'll see is not that he highlights the points where, here's where you guys did really good, here's where you didn't do so good, but then you came back and did the right thing here. But then it's not like that. It's more so, here's what God has done to keep you in all your wandering. And I don't know if that doesn't describe your Christian life and my Christian life today, And I don't know if that's exactly the Christian life the Bible talks about. Draw near is perhaps the starting point this morning in thinking about God's keeping power. Samuel has called them to draw near so that they might stand in a sort of courtroom of the kingdom. The kingdom is being renewed in this moment. There's great rejoicing. People are celebrating. And now Samuel says, now listen to this. Be sternly warned about where you go from this moment. And I think in some ways that's an important message for us on any Sunday morning. Certainly many of us would wake up on Sunday and say, I'm anticipating lifting up my voice with my brothers and sisters, hearing the good news of Jesus, spending time in fellowship, and I'm expecting to feel uplifted. But it may be necessary also for us to, in our drawing near, to stand still, and hear the message of God in a courtroom setting. Because what Samuel points out to them is that they have put God on trial, as it were. And we'll see that in a moment. Would you consider yourself one that would like to see God keep you as his own? Is that a a hallmark of your prayer life? Is that something that you continually see as as a theme, that, that as you recognize your sin, as you recognize your weakness, as you recognize the difficulty, not only of the Christian life, but of just life in general? Would you like to know that God will keep you as his own? We need to start with being in the courtroom. So let's begin by looking at the first five verses. Here Samuel gives his resume. In it, he asks questions. Have I stolen anything? Have I taken a bribe? Have I done anything that you would see in a leader and scoff at and say he ought not be there? And Israel resoundingly says, no, you've not taken anything from us. You've only done good by us as far as we can tell. Samuel proves then that he is in one sense the kind of leader that God chooses. God chooses leaders based on their character and based on their ability for their character to match up with God's character. Samuel is a good example of that. But does God only choose leaders whose character matches up with his character? I think Saul's going to prove that God often chooses other kinds of leaders that we might not have expected. So Samuel gives his resume. In verses 6 through 11, then, we have Israel's history since they entered the promised land, from the exodus to the conquest to where they are today in anointing a king. Samuel lays out for them that in their crying out in slavery in Egypt, God sent Aaron and Moses to save them. He points out that during the conquest and after the settlement of Israel in the promised land, That there were many times that Israel would worship false gods and they would receive the consequence of that by being put under the slavery of their enemies. They would cry out to God, even with these particular words. Do you remember what was said there in verse 10? We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. They even kind of recognize in their repentance where their real issue is in their idolatry, and in the fact that they have ceased to serve the one and true living God. From that, then, God would provide a savior. He would provide those like Jerubel and Jephthah and Barak and Samson and other judges that would help them to live in safety. Israel's history as a whole, though, proves that God has always proven to be a keeping God by grace alone, though that cycle of judges, as you remember, continued to spin over and over again. Not one of those cycles included Israel saying, hold on a second, God. We're going to get ourselves out of this mess so that we can offer something that's pleasing to you, and then you can bring us the salvation and we'll be in right relationship with you again. No, God proves throughout Israel's history that he is a keeping God by grace alone, and thus can we draw near to him. It's the same requirement as before with the king. Now, in verses 12 through 18, Samuel shifts over from history to today, and he says, look, now you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you. That was just chapter 11. You said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. And when the Lord your God was your king, Now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. It's a very interesting verse in verse 13, because it points out that two things are true. A, Israel got what they asked for, and they've appointed this king. But B, it is also true that God has given them what they asked for, and God is the one who has appointed this king, Saul, to reign over them. Unfortunately, Israel's faith in a king shows a lack of faith in the Lord. They received the king that they asked for. And again, Samuel puts the same requirement as Israel had before having a king, but now, in one sense, it becomes more difficult. They thought that having a king would make things easier, that they would be able to endure on their own better if there was a king in place over them. But now, their relationship with God will depend not only on their covenant faithfulness, but on the covenant faithfulness of their king as well. See this in verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Again, the addition of the king who reigns over you. Now, you've actually made things harder for yourself. Before, you had a king in heaven who was perfect, upon whom there was no question of condition. There would be no question of his good character. But now you have a sub-king underneath, a prince, as Saul was called earlier, with whom now you must be concerned with his character. And this will be important for you, right? Bible scholars, those of you who are thinking ahead into First Kings and Second Kings and the book of the Chronicles, what do you see there? As the king goes, so goes the nation. They will now put their faith in one person to stand in their place before God and retain their covenant promise. And they're not going to do very well. Israel's faith in a king, again, shows a lack of faith in the Lord. Their sin, then, is going to be pictured by a very dramatic expression of God's power. If you would, go to verse 16 with me. He says, in light of all of this, therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourselves a king. Now, you can talk to our resident farmer about weather patterns and planning for harvest and things like that. You don't expect this kind of thing to happen here while everything has grown and they're getting ready to go and make a harvest of all their crops. But this thunder and rain that came down from heaven would have destroyed much of that. And it stands then as a symbol to them of how their sin is out of sorts just as he expresses through nature being out of sorts in this moment. In verses 19 through 25, Israel responds, and they reveal their conviction. They recognize that they have done wrong. Go down to verse 19. He says, they say, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil. It's interesting. They recognize that they have sins, right? But they're also talking, I think, in the context of this history of Israel. And so they are, in one sense, recognizing their participation with their fathers. Nothing has really changed. Whether they're serving the Baals and the Ashtaroth or whether they're asking for their own king, they're recognizing their sin. So they say, we have added to all our sins this evil to ask ourselves a king should note in here that in their conviction, they don't say, okay, we understand that things are going to be different now. We'll be really careful now that we have a king. No, they recognize. There's even in one sense a tone of regret that perhaps many of them would have said, let's undo this kingship thing. It seems to just be piling on all of our other sins. Samuel reassures them of God's keeping instruction and intention. And so the command to draw near to God remains. We highlight all of these things so that we can see the message that Samuel gives in the courtroom of the kingdom as was typical for Hebrew courts. You would have an accuser and a defendant and in the end the expectation is one of them is going to be punished either for false accusation or for doing what they were accused of and so Samuel in laying out his own resume and describing the character of God and his keeping power throughout generations has turned the tables of the accusation on Israel themselves because it was in their hearts when they said give to us a king like all the do you remember like all the what the nations Give us a king like them. You know, that would be kind of like you saying, we need a new pastor. And we want a pastor like the rest of the world has CEOs. We want a pastor like all the politicians that we know. We want a pastor like everybody else or, or whatever leadership position. It is a looking away from God's standard and looking to the standard of the world. And I highlight all of that to tell you that the command remains to draw near because our God is a keeping God. So open your ears, church. Settle your hearts and obey the keeping God. Speaking of our hearts, who recognize the nature of the conflict in this passage is that hearts that wander grow hopeless. That being particularly hearts that wander from the presence of God, that wander away from that drawing near commandment. Again, the accusation has turned on to the accusers. They're recognizing that their hearts have wandered and that apart from God's keeping grace, they are indeed hopeless. Remember again how they respond here in verse 19. Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. This was a life or death matter. I don't know about you, but if I'm thinking about chapter 12 as Israel sort of having a church service, I don't really know if we, in our normal Sundays, come in thinking about matters of life and death. But this was their response to the storm that represented their sin. Last week, we talked about the problem of isolation. Isolation and how that tribe that was attacked by the Ammonites had isolated themselves and had received um, a a sort of uh, encouragement of that isolation from others, from their behavior, the behavior they received from the other tribes around them, from the other cities nearby, and how that left them hopeless. And now this week we need to consider, do our hearts wander? And as our hearts wander, because we know the answer to that first question, can we recognize the hopelessness of our own sin? Can we recognize the hopelessness of what we put our trust in? You know, I, I couldn't help, as I was thinking about wandering all week, that thing that you see on the side of Jeeps all the time, that slogan. I don't know, if I couldn't find out if it was the official Jeep slogan or not. But all who wander are not lost, right? I was pleasantly surprised to find out who actually wrote that. Did you know who wrote it? You'll never guess. J.R.R. Tolkien. And if that name doesn't mean to you, mean anything to you, it's the Lord of the Rings guy. I didn't do this on purpose. But Tolkien, in a poem that he writes, speaking of Aragorn the coming king, one line in it says, Not all who wander are lost. It's an encouraging thought when you think about driving a Jeep through the wilderness. Just saying, where are we going? I don't know. Somewhere where there's mud and hills, and excitement. We don't know where that is, but we'll wander until we get there. I couldn't help but look up the Oxford Dictionary definition of the word wander. It means to walk or move in a leisurely, casual, or aimless way. Leisurely, casual, or aimless. Perfectly acceptable in your Jeep adventure, in your four-wheeler adventure. Is it acceptable in the Christian life? Should we be those who walk in a leisurely, casual, and aimless way in our faith? Or will that kind of wandering in our hearts produce hopelessness? I think God's word shows us that this morning. The thunder and rain again helps them to see their wickedness. That was out of season. They weren't supposed to have thunder and rain at that rain at that time. They were getting ready to bring in the harvest. Now they will go out and find that many of their crops have been destroyed. This weather was out of season to show that their sin is out of sorts. Now that's important to us because it's very easy for us to consider our sin compared to other people and to consider that sin is just the human experience. One of the things that we've been talking about in the youth Sunday school class is about how sin is not meant to be part of the typical human experience. And that the humanity of Christ himself shows us that. That Jesus is not the weirdo because he didn't sin. We're the weirdos because of our sin. He's the one who lives the true human experience apart from sin and perfectly represents the image of God. Because he himself is God, of course. But this storm points out, hey, your sin is not just like everyone else's sin. And it's not like everyone else's sin because it's not part of the created intention. But perhaps even more pertinently to us today, our sin is out of sorts because we are people who have been redeemed by it, from it, rather. We are those who have been bought back, away from the slavery to sin. And when we engage in sin, we act contrary to our new nature. We act out of sorts when we sin. And that was the message of Israel. And that is why they started to question God's keeping power. We're going to die, Samuel. If you don't pray for us, if something doesn't happen, if somebody doesn't go between us and God right now, just like our crops have been destroyed, we have nothing but death and destruction in our future as well. Church, if your spiritual life includes a laissez-faire attitude about sin, a sort of wandering and leisurely walk in this world, and not one that is careful about where you step, careful about the efforts that you place into different goals and different things in your life. You have no reason to put your hope in the keeping God. You have no reason to put your hope in the one who will keep those who live a life that is completely contrary to his character. That's not to say that true believers do not sin. Of course we do. But our attitude and our response, our dealing with our sin matters so much to God. The storm reveals the distortion their wandering brings to their relationship with God. And as thunder struck the sky, conviction struck their hearts. And they realized that if God is not a keeping God, we will not be kept. Martin Lloyd-Jones has this great line I came across earlier this week. He says, when a man truly sees himself, he knows nobody can say anything about him that is too bad. That is too wrong. If you all took turns and stood up here and I sat down there and you all told me everything that was wrong with me, you wouldn't be able to get the half of it. Even if you observed my life for a week, 24-7 there would be nothing that you could say that could truly articulate the depths of my depravity. And I believe that's true for each and every one of us. When a man truly sees himself, he knows nobody can say anything about him that is too bad. Lloyd-Jones is correct. And I think that that illustrates for us the reality of Israel in this moment, the, the people as they recognize God's message to them. If you return to verse 10 with me for a moment, there was this mentioning of the Baals and the Ashtaroth, something else to recognize about our sin today. The idols of Baal and Ashtaroth were those that provided rain and fertility. They were the idols that were looked to that sort of represented a new family in whom those who worshiped them could trust them to keep them fed and keep them fruitful. Not only is our sin in our Christian life completely out of sorts with the new nature that we have, but it also is an expression of a longing to belong to a different family. There's some sources that believe that the Baals and the Ashtaroth were often in sort of boyfriend-girlfriend type relationships and that the the wedding of the two idols in the hearts and minds of those that worshipped them were in a part then their participation of being adopted into that family, as it were. And it is true of us as well when we put our trust elsewhere, when we let our hearts wander away from drawing near to God, that we find nothing but hopelessness. In verses 20 and 21, Samuel's warning is stern. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside from empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. I love this. In my mind, I kind of just kept this rotating back and forth that he's basically saying, don't turn to empty things because they're empty. There's nothing in them, right? I I love watching my kids share their food so liberally and thinking, oh man, this is just so fun. Here, try this, try this, try that, and then look down at their plate and they realize there's nothing left. They've enjoyed their food so much and they've enjoyed sharing their food so much that they've completely given it away and now have an empty plate entirely. There's something admirable admirable about that kind of character and I wish I had some of that as well in my life. However, it is that Sort of surprise at the emptiness. It's the surprise that comes when we do indeed let our hearts wander and we find ourselves hopeless and we start finding thoughts that creep into our minds that seem totally unchristian because they are. And they seem so totally out of character for us because they are, because sin is out of sorts. But if we adopt ourselves into other worldly, idolatrous types of families, what else will we expect? Are we finding hopelessness in what we turn to in our idols? Or the idols that you know are idols, are you somehow convinced that they can provide you what you're looking for? That they can provide the joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. That they can be those ones that keep you. A third thing to recognize about our sin in this passage is to remember Nahash. And you remember, Nahash, last week we noticed that in the Hebrew, that name means the serpent. Nahash was surrounding Jabesh Gilead. Those who were already isolated. Those who had wandered so far from the greater community of faith, which, let's face it, the rest of the tribes weren't doing that great anyway. But this isolation was, in one sense, the end point of their hopeless wandering. Not all who wander are lost, but those who wander away from the Lord are hopelessly lost. And it is the same enemy we have today who would use the things of this world to take our eyes off of our keeping God. Israel needed renewal. They needed to come to Gilgal and sit under Samuel's difficult message. And again, his difficult message said, look, what you have deserved by your works is nothing but death and condemnation. And so again, I say for us today, if our lives show zero interest in the things of God beyond perhaps church attendance or beyond perhaps wearing a WWJD bracelet or whatever it might be, some outward expression of a reality that's not truly there, then we have no hope whatsoever that God is keeping us in something needs to change. Jesus has come as the one who keeps us by grace for God's glory and for his pleasure. Samuel gives us at the end of this passage a sort of remedy, a sort of posture that we must end with, that, that we must be those who serve the Lord with our whole hearts. Listen to the description in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22 through 24, what Jesus says about, sorry, what Peter says about Jesus here, starting in verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to Righteousness. And then Peter quotes Isaiah in the very end of the sentence, by his wounds you have been healed. Christ is taking the woundings for our wanderings. He's taken our hopelessness and given us a perfect hope. And that is because he has taken our place, of course, at the cross. But it's also because he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And that is the keeping God of 1 Samuel chapter 12. Look down at Samuel's response back in 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Christ has saved us by grace at the cross because of this posture of God, that God's intention is to keep his people for two reasons for his great name's sake, for the glory that will attend his name for having saved us worthless sinners and made us into perfect, holy saints in Christ. Secondly, he has saved us not only because of his great namesake, because of the glory that he deserves, but also because it has pleased him to make you a people for himself the God of perfection and holiness and righteousness who could look at you and say, gross, I don't want anything to do with these people, has been so pleased to bring you near, so draw near to him. Draw near to the keeping God and in your thoughts, in your worries, in your hopelessness over whether he will keep you or whether he's attentive to your life, whether he seems absent and aloof or, or whether he, it's been you or him, who, all, the, all those questions that, that boil up in our hearts so often. Recall that the keeping God keeps for those two reasons, for the glory of his name, because it has pleased him to make you his people. That is the message of Christ at the cross indeed as well. And what better hope could we ask for in our wanderings? How are we sure that the keeping grace of God will overcome our failing, though? Do our hearts cry out for more of a source of assurance? Like Israel in verse 19, where their request is, Don't stop praying for us. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Way back in chapter 7, they said the same thing. They're faced with their sin and they go, don't stop praying for us. Please continue to pray for us. Now in chapter 7, they said, pray to the Lord our God. And now, tragically, in chapter 12, their, their language changes. Pray to the Lord your God. We feel distant from him. The keeping power and the keeping desire of God draws us near to him. So that we might not say, Pray to the Lord your God, some God that is distant that I don't know, but rather pray to the Lord our God, and it is Jesus who indeed intercedes for us. Just as Samuel said, far be it from me to cease to pray for you, so for you, Christ as well prays in our behalf. Samuel was certain he would continue in prayer at the risk of sin, but Christ will continue to pray for you despite your sin despite your wickedness, despite your worrying, despite your wandering and your hopelessness, Christ will continue to intercede for his people and will restore them in their wanderings by calling them near. So with that assurance of grace, we are called to serve with our whole hearts. At this time, I would like to invite kids to come down. We're going to read from this really great book. I know this is all mixed up, but um, so if you want to come down to the front row, uh, this is Little Pilgrim's Progress. It's just like a kid's version of the Pilgrim's Progress, which is a classic, of course, as you might know. Well, Pilgrim is, uh, Christian that is, one who is going on this journey and everything's all symbolic, right? It's all about pictures. Norm, why don't you scoot over a little bit? That way, yeah, there you go, thanks. It's all symbolic. He's hes meeting people who have really funny names, but but their names have a deep meaning about what they're like and what they're all about. And at one point, Pilgrim goes to this place um, called the House of Interpreter. Have you guys read this story? Yeah? Yeah. No? (laughs) Do you remember Interpreter? Interpreter is kind of like the parable guy. Like, he kind of shows up, and he ends up showing all these excellent pictures to Pilgrim about his life in Christ. Um, Hi, Lucy, will you go sit with your sister, please, so I can show this to everyone? It would be a lot easier. No. Okay. That's great. When he shows up at Interpreter's house... He opens the door. Interpreter says, welcome, little pilgrim. The king placed me here to prepare you for the many challenges you will face on your journey. They entered a dirty room. Interpreter asked a man to sweep the room, which filled the room with dust. Christian began to cough. Interpreter asked another helper to sprinkle the room with water, and this made the dust settle to the floor so it could be easily cleaned. The dust is our sin, interpreter said. And the sweeping broom is like trying to fix our sin by following all sorts of rules. The sprinkled water is like the king's mercy and grace, which are the only way to remove dirt from our lives. It is not through our efforts that we become clean, but only by trusting the king to purify us. So we've been talking about God being a keeping God. And he's not a keeping God who says, hey, get a broom out and clean up all your mess. Rather, he's a keeping God who sprinkles purifying water on us to wash us clean of all of our sin so that we can walk in the life that Christ has for us. Let me skip this page and go to this one now. Then then Christians saw a fire. A wicked man poured water on it. Do you see the wicked man pouring water on the fire? What's he trying to do by pouring water on the fire? He's trying to put it out, isn't he? Spoiler alert, we're not there yet. Yes, can I read that part? Yeah. So Christian saw a fire and a wicked man was pouring water on it, but the fire would not go out behind the wall was a kind and gracious man who kept the fire burning with oil. What does this mean? Christian asked. The fire said interpreter is like the love pilgrims have for the king. And he said, the man pouring water is like Lord Beelzebub. That's Satan who always tries to hinder pilgrims. But the man pouring oil is like the king's son who helps pilgrims on their journey. So what Jesus is doing for us, the way that he keeps us is not by allowing us to figure out ways to keep the fire going, to keep rushing back and forth with more sticks and paper to keep the fire burning. Rather, it is Jesus who pours this oil over the fire to keep the fire hot so that he can keep us as his. Pretty cool picture, isn't it? Yeah. Thank you for coming and listening. Will you go back to your seats for the last part of our Service today? Thank you very much. Samuel's ending, the ending of Samuel's message, only fear the Lord, verse 24, and serve him faithfully with all your heart. We cannot do that unless we have a full assurance of grace that keeps us. That we are kept by grace. We are kept by that pursuit of glory, and we're kept for God because of His pursuit of His own pleasure and joy. And so we might find glory in, uh, in aligning our hearts to His purpose, and we might find pleasure and joy and satisfaction by aligning ourselves with His plan as well. Samuel's final exhortation regarding the whole art is an important theme in 1 Samuel because we talked a lot about Saul's character. Coming up in chapter 16, we'll talk about David's character, where God will tell Samuel, you're looking at the outside, but God looks at the inside, at the heart, the intentions, the character, the person, the true person. May our hearts, may he look on our hearts this morning and find a refreshed hope in the keeping grace and glorious purpose of our God. So I have a couple questions for you as we end this morning. If Christ has so kept me by his work at the cross... Is there anything that he can't ask me to do? Is there anything I can rightly refuse from his instruction? To serve the Lord with your whole heart is to seek the glory of his great name and his pleasure with the sum of your life. There's nothing we can truly refuse from the one who has done such a great thing in keeping us, in winning us back and keeping us perfectly. Can you do this without the assurance of God's keeping grace? Can you truly with your whole heart seek the glory of his name and the pleasure and his pleasure in your life without the assurance of his keeping grace? I would say you can't. We're going to sing take my life and let it be. And then we'll go to communion after um, our final song here. So again, something else being mixed up. But I want you to think on the lines here from Take My Life. I'm going to read. We're not going to do all six verses. But there's six different things that this hymn calls us to offer up to the Lord. The first one is, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Second verse, take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. The third verse, take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. And take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet, its treasure store. Since we are so gloriously kept by our gracious king, What empty thing might be holding us back today from serving him with our whole heart? Let's take a moment of silent meditation in light of that question to examine our hearts to see, is there something that I'm holding back from God at the place of my heart? Is it my life? Is it my hands, my voice, my money, my resources, my will, or my love? Take just a moment to do that before we sing our final song.